Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark with your weekly serving of politics. I think with uncertainty looming, I think all the Tory Remainers will fold. Or every single one, I think, Ken Clark. I, I really wouldn't write that off. And culture. You can meet a suffragette character and you can talk to them, converse with them, learn from them. Um, you can also beat them up and throw them to alligators. Later on in this broadcast, we hear from Piers Brendan, the Cambridge historian and former keeper of the Churchill Archive. He recently wrote for Prospect on that other great 20th century figure, Charles de Gaulle. Why do men like de Gaulle and Churchill endure? And what do they mean for our present time? De Gaulle saw himself as a great historical figure in the tradition of Charlemagne, Joan of Arc, Louis XIV and Napoleon, and, and he, he saw himself under the aegis of history. More of that later on in the broadcast, but first I'm here with my colleague Samir Rahim, who is our art supremo, and Alex Dean, who watches Westminster with a keen eye. And first, over to you, um, Samir. You've been thinking about the world of video games. Yes, leading on from an excellent piece we have in uh, Prospect this month uh, by Tim Martin. We sent him along to a games convention in Birmingham to see what's what's going on in the world of, of video games. Whether they're approaching what game designers only half-jokingly refer to as their Citizen Kane moment. And Citizen Kane being the moment that um, film was taken seriously as an art form. Should we take video games uh, more seriously? That's a question that, that he asks. Red Dead Redemption 2, which is the Western shooting and uh, killing and stealing game from those evil geniuses who brought you Grand Theft Auto, is in its way a remarkable work of art. Um, one of our colleagues, Chris, here has been playing it over the weekend and has been telling me about the exceptional quality of um, horse hair that it, you can... Uh, is rendered and the wonderful landscapes and it, it really is immersive and remarkable in a way for people who perhaps like myself who haven't really dipped into video games for the last 10 or 15 years but it's still a sort of shoot em up is that what you're saying this is albeit with horsehair fundamentally games like um grand theft auto and uh, red dead redemption yes your job is to steal stuff and kill people and try and get away with it so in its element, it's still a game and it's still pretty straightforward and unsophisticated in that sense. And so when Tim went to have a look at some of the other kinds of games that are being developed, he found something a lot more interesting, perhaps. One particular one is one called um, Disco Elysium, where um, you play a detective trying to solve a mystery, conventional enough. 
But actually, in order to solve the mystery, you have to develop your own consciousness um, by playing certain, uh, having certain conversations with people, training yourself up in different ways, and you solve the mystery depending on what kind of person you become. And it's written by uh, an Estonian novelist called Robert Kurtwitz, um, and it's a lot more akin to a kind of inst- work of installation art than it is a straightforward um, video game. In fact, that name, video game, is one of the problems, perhaps. And some of the designers he talks to are are not that happy about the way we think of things as simply just games or uh, something where you just rack up points or kills or leap over things. Um, They're more interested in um, ambiguity or there not being a right answer or at least not there not being uh, one answer, uh, which makes um, some of the more immersive games um, that he writes about in the piece a lot more akin to novels uh, or indeed movies than uh, the traditional shoot 'em up. So, Samir, we we talk about um, the, these simple shoot 'em up games, but isn't there kind of a layer of irony that maybe makes them more sophisticated than they first appear? Or am I just being naive and, and trying to kind of give them credit where there is none? Well, uh, there was the controversy this week over the fact that in Red Dead Redemption 2, you can meet a suffragette character um, and you can talk to them, converse with them, learn from them. Um, you can also beat them up and throw them <laughs> to alligators. Right, okay. Cue Daily Mail headlines and you know outrage on Twitter about how terrible this was. And YouTube briefly did ban videos of this um, uh, suffragette uh, having horrible things done to her. The important thing to remember is, though, that there is a kind of morality within the game. You can do that. You are free to do that. Just like in Grand Theft Auto, you could punch prostitutes and all the rest of it. You will then be arrested. You get the stars, don't you, on, on Grand Theft Auto. You kind of punch one person, you get one star. And if you start stealing ambulances, you get two or three stars. And yeah, start- there is a sort of moral gradation there. So the game becomes more difficult. And in fact, you will ultimately, if you be killed. On the other hand, there is a kind of perverse pleasure that um, gamers, uh, some gamers at least, do take in these um, these elements of the game. And uh, in a way, the game's designers are having a joke with you, but I wonder how ironically everyone takes that. I was more interested in the, um, what sounded to me, flat-out weird kind of games that popped up in Tim Martin's piece. One being, your job is to be, I think, a, a customs officer in the Soviet Union and <laughs> yeah, deal with the complexities. Uh, Papers, Please is a really interesting game. Started playing a bit over the weekend. So you're a border guard in an Eastern European country under communist rule. And your job is to simply stamp people's passports and you make the decision about whether to let them in or whether to not let them in. And it's a very basic, simple game at first. But then it starts to develop more complexities because you have to make the decision about whether you're going to take bribes from certain people or not. If you don't take bribes, then, you know, your children's schooling and healthcare goes down and you start to suffer as a family. So the game makes you take bribes and you have to sort of decide when to do that. At some points, people will come and blow themselves up uh, in front of you because they're terrorists. And so you have to be able to spot them. So it's a very incremental um, game, which also makes um, some quite important and interesting political points. Maybe quite good if you're working for the... um UN, where work is often complex, but of course it's also complex, Alex, um, closer to home. I know you try and be a general political correspondent rather than just a Brexit correspondent, um, but we've had this funny week that means we can't get away from Brexit. Theresa May's deal comes back, it's dead on arrival, but then you're just starting to hear a bit of, oh, well, maybe she knows what she's doing and she's a bit more sensible than some of these posturing 
men. How do you think it's all looking? Everyone publicly seems to be saying that the, the deal doesn't have uh, you know any chance whatsoever of getting through Parliament. But interestingly, people have started emailing me, uh, kind of saying that semi-secretly they think that the deal might have more of a chance than than they're admitting. I agree with that. Um, someone in the office asked me earlier what I put the percentage chance at of the deal going through, and I said 51%. So just over, just over 50-50. Not 52%. Uh, no, no, exactly 51 <laughs> And on the first go, or do you think this is goes away and then there's... Uh, it's an interesting thing. We were talking about that, weren't we, Samir, on the way down? Um, the idea of whether you could get a second go at it. Yeah, I mean, so what's going to happen? So if, you, if they uh, lose the first vote could you know in the pound tanks or something is that the moment where everyone starts to panic and then she comes back for a second vote and it passes so i think it's interesting you've brought in the markets there um the example that comes to mind is tarp in the us which was kind of a bank rescue bailout thing after the 2008 crash and what happened there was congress didn't pass it the first time round the markets tanked everyone got really panicky and then congress kind of had another look and it did go through um, and i think that's a useful an- analogy actually this time around my personal reading is that there's all this stuff you know particularly with last night the dup uh, giving a show of strength and voting against the government um, and, and there's real pessimism about this deal. Um, and, you know, I can see why. And I think maybe it won't go through the first time. But when, when it really comes to it with the most efficient, hardcore whipping operation in history, um, you know, w- whips will really, really go hard on the MPs. I think with uncertainty looming, I think all the Tory Remainers will fold. All of them? Or every single one, I think. Ken Clark, Even Joe Johnson, who walked out so he could vote against I, I really wouldn't write that off. I, I mean, Ken Clark and Anna Subri have already been making positive or ambiguous noises when you'd expect them to go hardline saying they're mm. not going to vote for. Uh, Nikki Morgan has said she will vote for the deal. And then the Dominic most... Grieve? Grieve will fold uh, like he did last time. And I say that as someone with huge respect for Dominic Grieve. I really think he's an incredibly sharp operator. Um, But the problem is with these Remainers is they're quite sensible. That's the thing. They're not kamikaze pilots. But the most interesting MP was Stephen Hammond, who's a hardline Remainer. Uh, Someone in the office was asking me whether I thought he'd vote with the government. And before we knew it, he was in the government. <laughs> so he's now a minister. So he's, he's, of course, going to vote with the government. Amber Rudd's back as well, isn't she? Another kind of person who might have been worried from the Remain side on the outside. That's another Remainer in the fold, yeah. Um, and then in terms of the really hardcore Brexiteers, you know, Rhys Mogg, Steve Baker and so on from this ERG, European Research Group of Brexiteers, will vote against. Um, that's not in any doubt. But there's those kind of wavering middle ground Brexiteers who I think maybe will vote with the government at second time of asking. But it's all going to be about whether she can really say to people on the first vote or the second time through, it's my way or the highway, which she's tried to do. But I wonder whether she's given a bit of ground there, because having been very clear, it's this deal or no deal. Now she's saying it's this deal or there might be no Brexit at all. Yeah, which <laughs> which actually got Remainers uh, very excited. I was asking Andrea Ledsom about this kind of thing uh, and, and all the meaningful vote and my way or the highway. And it's quite interesting because Ledsom, despite kind of teetering on the edge of resigning and, and you know, all this stuff that's happened since we last recorded a podcast, <laughs> um, it feels like, you know, it's been months and it's just been a week. Um, but Ledsom is still leader of the Commons. 
uh, and still has a real, you know, her insights into this kind of thing are as important as anyone's, I think. And she was explaining what would happen if uh, MPs made significant amendments to what was voted on. And she was raising the prospect of the government having to do this weird kind of retreat to Brussels to try and renegotiate things so that Parliament might find it more acceptable the next time that it gets to vote on it. Mm. But then the EU's been making a huge amount of noise saying that it's absolutely not going to reopen negotiations. So we'll have to see. We will indeed, Alex, as ever with you, have to see how things pan out in another um, seven days that could feel like another seven years. Thank you both for now. And uh, for this week's main interview, we're going to go over now to Piers Brendan, who's a historian who earlier this year did a long review for us of a big biography of Charles de Gaulle, A Certain Idea of France by Julian Jackson. Just like Churchill for Britain, de Gaulle is such a dominating figure that he's become part of France's view of itself. But are these almost mythological creatures actually good for a nation's self-image, or do they lead them into self-delusion? Over now to my colleague Jay Elwes. I'm here with Piers Brendan, the Cambridge historian. Hello, Piers. Welcome to the Prospect Podcast. Hello, Jay. Um, You wrote uh, a fantastic piece for us earlier in the year all about Charles de Gaulle. There was a big biography that came out about him. And uh, why is it that a figure like de Gaulle is so important to us now? Well, I think great men have a sort of gravitational pull on history. De Gaulle saw himself as a great historical figure in the tradition of Charlemagne, Joan of Arc, um, Louis XIV and Napoleon. And and he he saw himself under the kind of um, aegis of history. He had an an impact partly because he had this great idea of himself and partly because of his own extraordinary intransigence. He, his, his finest hour, just like Churchill's, was in 1940, in the summer of 1940, where he represented the resistance of France. Um, he saved the soul of the nation, it was said. That stood him in incredibly good stead for the rest of his career. This was the high point of his, his, his life. And looking backwards and looking forwards, people have to take into account de Gaulle, so that, that Macron, for example, today, is looking back to de Gaulle. He's, he's inflating the majesty of the president, um, the, the president being, of course, the, the head of the state who um, of the Fifth Republic, which de Gaulle himself created. So I think you can say that although it's not fashionable, and, and indeed it's nonsense to talk about history being the biography of great men, nevertheless, great men have a great impact on history, and de Gaulle was no different from them. His impact, as you as you set out in your review, but also as Julian Jackson set out in in the book itself, a certain idea of France. Uh, it, it, he paints a portrait of somebody who almost willfully became a symbol. Do you think that's is that a fair way of putting it? I think he'd always been a symbol, actually. I, I mean, he'd regarded himself as a symbol. His name, which actually means the wall. <laughs> yes, <laughs> has it, not, it derived from the Flemish. It's re- derived from the Flemish. So he's it's nothing actually, to do with de, yes. de, de, de being noble or gold being France. Um, it, 
But he nevertheless always had this idea of him. I mean, when he was at Saint-Cyr in, in uh, his military school, one of the instructors said, well, he, you know, he's incredibly intelligent, he's absolutely brilliant figure, but he regards himself as a king in exile. And this was a young man, taller, of course, than everybody else, uh, but, but <laughs> still having this extraordinarily inflated idea of his destiny. Churchill, when he first saw him, he said, l'homme de destin. Uh, and de Gaulle, I think, always felt himself in that state. Indeed, as Churchill did, this is the extraordinary thing, both men from a very, very early age convinced others as well as themselves that they were men of destiny, that they were going to rule their country and that they were going to be saviors. And both men wrote histories of their own time, which turned out to be uh, redemptive dramas in which they were the saviour and the hero. This natural tendency towards self-aggrandizement that that de Gaulle showed was rather bound up somewhat perhaps by his being extraordinarily tall, by having a rather (laughs) awkward manner, as you also remind us in in the piece that he had... uh, uh, rather uh, startling uh, halitosis as well. <laughs> so, so he's, he's a rather <laughs> odd agglomeration of characteristics. But he did he was he did rub people up the wrong way, didn't he? I mean, he was not especially the Americans. Oh, absolutely. I mean, during the war, he 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 said that only through intransigence could he maintain France's greatness and grandeur. This was something. And he started talking about himself in the third person. He used the royal we, just like Louis XIV. He virtually said, l'état c'est moi, you know, the state, uh, I, I am the state. So from a very early age, he, he was extraordinarily rude, prickly. He went in for the, the, the most menacing forms of silence. He said that the, a great leader is silent, quite the opposite to Churchill, of course, who thought that a great leader was extremely voluble. And Churchill, Churchill was driven mad by him. I, I, and he said in his wonderful French, si vous m'obstaclerez, je vous liquiderai. In other words, if, if you get in my way, I'm going to get rid of you. <laughs> and, um, and he did. He uh, at, at, at one point, he said, de Gaulle must be taken back to Algiers in chains if necessary. So it was a, an extraordinary relationship. And yet Churchill admired him because he said, this man, uh, he behaves like Stalin with 200 divisions behind him. Uh, and yet he has nothing. He relies entirely on our goodwill and he doesn't give a damn. And it's funny, that was the impression that, again, some of the American senior military had of de Gaulle and why... Uh, I think Roosevelt never trusted him. They suspected that he had sort of dictatorial intentions. Absolutely, that, that they did. I mean, Roosevelt described him as an apprentice dictator, and various other people had had the same feeling. I mean, about him, uh, Adenauer later on said he was a bit Führer-like, and a lot of people felt that if it, it 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 was not just Napoleon that he resembled, but Mussolini and possibly even Hitler as well, because because he was so ruthlessly determined to get his own way and my god he was ruthless i mean he didn't he didn't spare people and he employed uh, as president uh, a man called maurice papon who had been uh, had served in the vichy regime and had been re- responsible for the deportation of jews to uh, to germany so uh, de gaulle was a, a very unbending character 
an adamantine, flint-like character, uh, and that's the impression, of course, he liked to give. But at the same time, he was also a master politician. This is the interesting thing about Julian Jackson's book, and the very clever thing that he, he De Gaulle presented this image of the uh, uh, of a latter-day Louis the Fourteenth, and yet it turns out that he was an extremely skillful party politician. He presented himself as the national hero, the national saviour, the embodiment of the nation, and actually he was a dedicated party politician with a stiletto in his sock. And was he able to bring along the left after 1945? The left had been so prominent in the resistance movements that de Gaulle himself had sort of spearheaded. De Gaulle, after 1945, um, when he was briefly in charge of France, he tried again to unify France. And the way that he did that was he played down the sins of Vichy and he played down the achievements of the resistance. And and indeed, he, he, he this is understandable because the resistance, the, the, the spine, the, the, the guts of the resistance had been communist. And uh, uh, de Gaulle, he wanted to recreate the state. He had an almost mystical view of the importance of the state and he didn't, uh, he wanted to undermine the legitimacy of the resistance and to reconcile Vichy and so he described Vichy as a just a handful of scoundrels. He didn't attach the blame that Vichy deserved to have attached to it because Vichy had had been collaborating with 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 Hitler all through the war. So how can we fit someone like President Charles de Gaulle and his incredible legacy into current European politics? I mean, he seems so far removed from the type of leaders that we have now. Yes, I mean, I, I think. Uh, in some ways, of course, it, 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 there was a sort of Trump-like element about de Gaulle. You know, he 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 caused uh, a terrific upsets by criticizing the United Nations as a means of of, of uh, American power. He went to Canada and he said, "Vive le Québec libre." Uh, he caused a, a great deal of trouble, and of course, he kept Britain out of the uh, out of the common market. So he constantly asserted himself as president on the world stage because that corresponded to the grandeur of France of which he was the champion. So you could say, really, that like Trump, he was constantly on display. Uh, he he was manifesting France first. France, uh, 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 just as, as Trump is manifesting America first, uh, he was advertising the greatness of France because, of course, it had been undermined. And he said, interestingly, about France's independent nuclear deterrent, that it was a resurrection. It was something that guaranteed France's major role on the world stage. And I think that this is something which he had in common with Churchill, of course, that he, he, he couldn't bear the thought that France would become simply another European power. Churchill is a figure who is repurposed and brought out into British politics in all sorts of ways, most recently uh, in a new book that you recently reviewed by Andrew Roberts. What, what do you think when you see Churchill popping up repeatedly like this. You know, Boris Johnson wrote a book about him. Yes. Last summer, you reviewed a whole series of films for us that were all about Churchill, yes. one of which you, in fact, advised upon. Yes. Um, what, what do you make of Churchill as this totem? Well, it's very interesting, really. I, I think that um, if you look at the 20th century, until 1940, Britain looked back to the first day of the Somme as its key moment, the, the moment when we suffered, and the, and the result of the First World War was extremely equivocal. 
After 1940, we looked back to our finest hour, the hour when Churchill resisted Hitler, Britain alone. Of course, it wasn't quite alone because of the empire and so on, but, but Britain, Britain alone, Britain uh, uh, resisting uh, Hitler. And this picture of Britain, I think, has been something which we have cherished ever since. It's our moment of glory. The problem is that in 1940, we were indeed um, a superpower. Uh, the American army was about the size of the Turkish army. Hitler, of course, was a, was a major power, but, um, you know, we had, a, we had the greatest navy in the world. We had dominions all around the world which came to our, our aid. What has happened since then is that we have become diminished. I mean, the, the old cliché, it's become a cliché uh, now about uh, losing an empire and not finding a role. But nevertheless, it's a truth. And what do we do? We do what the French are doing uh, now. They're looking back to the glory days of de Gaulle and the, the fact that he was the embodiment of the, of the glory of France. I mean, don't forget, glory is, is, is a key thing. Over the gateway of <coughs> Versailles, is the legend, à toutes les gloires de la France. It was embodied in Louis XIV, in Napoleon, and in, later in de Gaulle. And I think our glory, the British, British glory, is, is embodied in the resistance that we put up with Churchill's sublime leadership expressed in the extraordinary eloquence that he could command. And we look back to that. The problem about that is it that the past is distorting our presence because we are now a minor power. We're a European power. We're trying to assert ourselves in Brexit um, to kind of regain the so-called the supposed independence that we had then. It all goes back to our nostalgia for that extraordinary moment in history where we were... Uh, standing up to the, one of the greatest evils that the world has ever seen and that, 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 that we spilled our blood in this cause. It's hard to see that uh, national myth of, you know, finest hour and so on ever being replaced by anything else, isn't it? I think it is. I mean, it's disappeared. And, and But politicians are constantly talking about, I mean, uh, Douglas Hurd coined the phrase about boxing above our weight, that we must, uh, all right, we are dimin uh, diminished in certain respects, but we are a world leader. And constantly you have uh, Mrs. May and others talking about uh, world leadership. And Boris Johnson was a, was a, a good example of that. I mean, he his deplorable book about Churchill was full of, full of, full of inaccuracy. Oh, did you read it? Oh, yes. Um, full of inaccuracy and clearly, and written in the style of the Beano, uh, which was designed to, n not to get to grips, I think, with Churchill, but to promote him, him as the replacement for Churchill. He, is, he sees himself in a sort of Churchillian mode, and he has a certain command of rhetoric, nothing like Churchill's, but, but that's what, what we go back to. And I think you, again and again you can see it, and it's not just Britain. Churchill's bust goes in and out of the Oval Office, depending on the, the particular propensities of the president. George W. Bush, for example, he invoked Churchill as the person who refused to appease Germany in the 1930s, and Bush said, and we're not going to appease Saddam Hussein today. It was a preposterous notion, really, because Saddam Hussein was not a threat to America in the way that Hitler was a threat to the, the Western world. 
and um, Bush uh, was certainly no uh, was certainly no Churchill, <laughs> uh, anything but it. But uh, uh, it also misrepresented Churchill because Churchill was the champion anti-appeaser. That's certainly true during the 1930s. But later on, he what did he want to do? He wanted to come to some sort of rapprochement with with uh, uh, Soviet Russia during the 1950s. And Churchill in 1950 himself said to Parliament, appeasement may be good or bad, depending on the circumstances. Appeasement for weakness, yes, bad. But appeasement from strength and because you want to conciliate your opponents and to, and to uh, uh, work out a, a, a modus vivendi, uh, that's good. Uh, and by that time, the Americans had so... Uh, absorb the, le- the lesson of the disgrace of Munich and so on, that um, when uh, Eisenhower came back from uh, Geneva, the Geneva summit, um, Nixon instructed everybody on the tarmac that they were not, despite the fact that it was raining, that they were not to hold umbrellas when they greeted the president on his return from talking to the Russians, because that might remind people of Chamberlain and the disgraceful appeasement of, 19, uh, of 1938 at Munich. So uh, I, I think, you know, Churchill's had a, a global impact. Uh, in some ways, de Gaulle has too, uh, 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 as I say, by, by, the, by the Trump example. You were describing a lot of um, distortions that are caused by history, by partly remembered invocations of past glories and so on. Part of, part of your work involves being an educator, writing books and you know, giving uh, lectures and so forth. Is there any way that from that perspective you can see of beginning an adjustment in our attitude towards these uh, much abused elements of our history so that we can see things a bit more straight? That's a very interesting question. Of course, history is the answer. I mean, looking at it straight is the answer. The trouble is that too many books um, are hagiographies. They they exaggerate the glories of the past, um, and they don't look at uh, history plain. And I think that the key to the answer is examining our history in an objective way. Uh, It took France, for example, an awful long time to come to terms with the horrors of collaboration. I mean, not until uh, 1968 did was it generally acknowledged that um, France had had, uh, deported Jews and um, it's taken even longer for the full horrors of the the Vichy regime to come out into the open and that's because we tend to bury our past, we don't look at it in in an objective and detached kind of way and we don't to it, the proper canons. We criticise uh, we criticise Turkey, for example, over uh, denying the Armenian massacres. We should criticise Japan for refusing to come to terms with its own history. And, and in your decline and fall of the British Empire, you set out in really quite uh, quite difficult uh, to read detail some of the really really appalling episodes in in British post colonial history. I suppose you could call it our disengagement from various areas of the globe that occurred in the twentieth century. Some of, uh, well, I'd say a lot of that does not appear on any British history syllabus, certainly not up to 18. That strikes me maybe as our uh, lacuna. 
Yes, I, I think this is right. I mean, if you still if you look at the kind of books that are emerging, Jan Morris is the classic case in point, a wonderful three-volume uh, celebration, really, of the empire. And the, these books are still emerging, in, in fact, giving an account of the empire, which is certainly rose-tinted. I think we've got to come to terms with it. I mean, a, a book was written, I, I disagree with it, but it was called Britain's Gulag, which was all to do with uh, our behaviour as we disengaged from Kenya. I think that was wrong. I don't think it compared to the Gulag. On the other hand, what it did throw up and what I found myself, because I did some some original research about this, um, is that we behaved in the most brutal fashion, as, of course, the French did um, in Algeria. Decolonization is often an extremely painful process. And uh, I think we should come to terms with that, and we should come to terms with the fact that our empire was designed to uh, enhance Britain's power and wealth, and often we used extraordinarily ruthless measures to achieve that object. Uh, and this is something which uh, I got a lot of stick for, really, for, 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 for saying, I mean, interestingly, Jan Morris reviewed my book and said it was a wonderful book, but it had a, a fatal flaw, which was that I was too critical of the empire. Another thing that you've been uh, involved in uh, in recent years, which I referred to in passing earlier, is the the spate of films that came out yes. about uh, Churchill. You reviewed, as I said, uh, uh, several of them for Prospect last uh, summer, but you advised on the Oldman film, didn't you? Yeah, I I, I was called in to talk to the cast um, before the uh, film was made. Uh, which I was very interested to, to do. I think they got more out of it. Uh, I got more out of it than they did. Um, but I did give them a, a, a talk, and I did talk to individual members of the cast about how to portray various figures in it. And that was a very interesting experience. But, of course, one's got to remember that this film is a film. It's not a historical documentary. It doesn't pretend to be that, and it contains episodes which are more or less impossible. Notably, Churchill's uh, um, going down into the tube and talking to a whole lot of people about <laughs> about what he should do. Well, yes, as a historian of Churchill, I mean, <laughs> is there a role for filmic, uh, fictionalised depictions of the spirit of an era, or is that beginning to take us down the kind of rose-tinted glasses path that you think is a bit dangerous? I think there is obviously a, a role for historical fiction and historical films, um, but I don't think one should ever allow it to supersede a very careful assessment of the realities of the situation. The trouble about most of these films is that they tended to glamorise war and to, to glamorise our own role in it. And it was very interesting to, to see that, you know, after the war, we had all these stiff upper-lipped um, Englishmen uh, going through the motions and so on. And it did give them a, a, a really a fundamental misrepresentation of what the war had been about. Um, actually, I mean, in some respects, uh, of course, it was quite realistic uh, when they made films about Dunkirk and Arnhem and so on. They, they used sort of, um, you know, people, people who'd been there and some of the aircraft and so on were recycled to take part in the film. So to that extent, they were realistic. But the general picture that was given was a picture of a, a glamorized war rather than a realistic war. And finally, Piers, the 
distorted historical view that is still quite popular in Britain that has been kind of hanging over a lot of what we've discussed here. How much of that do you think has driven our attitude towards Europe, towards Brexit, and towards you know the idea that Britain can be a member of the European kind of team and not sort of exceptionally placed mid-Atlantic, standing alone, etc. Churchill, his attitude towards Europe was a very peculiar one. I mean, he, he extolled Europe, and in 1946, in his Zurich speech, he made one of the most eloquent uh, appeals for a United States of Europe. Was Britain to be a, a member of that United States? Well, uh, to some extent, uh, we're not quite sure where, where he stood. He certainly didn't want a federal Europe, but he did believe in the worth of Europe as a sort of cultural, economic and military entities standing between America and Russia, having having a, an importance uh, as a sort of balancing factor. Britain's role, he thought, and he told de Gaulle this, and it rankled with de Gaulle for the rest of his life. He said, look, if, if it ever comes down to it, we shall favour the Atlantic Alliance. We shall favour, we shall look overseas to America. We shall uh, look to the English-speaking peoples um, and n- not to, to, to Europe. So to that extent, I think um, Churchill, uh, Boris Johnson would like to think that Churchill was an absolutely card-carrying Brexiteer in his his own image. Um, It's very difficult to to say precisely. My own feeling is that Churchill was a great leader. And he said himself that great leaders do not necessarily represent, do not have their ear close to public opinions. In other words, he didn't believe that in in the French dictum, you know, I am their leader, I must follow them. He believed in leading and taking a a strong stand. And I think that if he were around, this is my personal view and I can't prove it, he would probably favour something which was in the national interest, which I take to be being an integral member of, of the European community. Um, now, that's a controversial view, and as I say, it's unprovable, but I think um, as a great patriot, that is probably what Churchill uh, would say, and it's certainly the view that his grandson, Nicholas Soames, takes of him. Piers Brendan, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Piers Brendan there, speaking to my colleague Jay Elwes. And to read Piers's full review of A Certain Idea of France, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk, where you'll find all sorts of great stuff on domestic politics, global affairs, as well as arts, culture and more. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Samir and to Alex here in the studio. And the December edition of Prospect is in the shops now. And it's all about, I'm afraid... Britain and Europe. The producer of this broadcast was Jay Elwes. Thanks so much to uh, all of you for listening and please do go to iTunes where you can rate and review this podcast which really helps other listeners to find us. Be sure to join us again next week for the Prospect Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.